I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the scripture passage that we'll read and meditate upon as we continue in the book, or the letter, rather, to the, uh, to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. Just a brief reminder, last week we considered how the Apostle Paul sort of took us on a tour of God's deep love for us. It started in eternity past when he chose us and predestined us in love to be his adopted children in Christ. And with that, he has given us as co-heirs with Christ an eternal, imperishable inheritance. And so the, the opening of this letter we considered last week, it's truly epic, it's majestic, considering God's lavish grace upon us. As we move on here today in this letter, uh, here in this passage, Paul is revealing to us, revealing to the Ephesians first and then to us, what he's been asking God to do in prayer for the Ephesians. His constant prayer, we'll notice, it's not that they would become healthy and wise in life, or wealthy and healthy. Uh, no, rather his prayer gets to the heart, to the very heart of what we should desire and strive for as humans. He prays that we come to know with the true knowledge, the true living God through Christ our King, that we have a true knowledge of God. And so with that, let's give our undivided, undivided, rather, undivided attention to the word of God here from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints who I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So far, the reading of God's holy and infallible word, may the Holy Spirit write it upon our hearts as we meditate on it now. Well, it's often said that knowledge is power. It's, I remember it being a sign in uh, my classroom, a poster at school, knowledge is power. And there's some truth to that, right? Even Proverbs 24, 5 through 6 says this, that a wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. In other words, we see there that the more you know about the world as God created it and how things work together, the more you know that, 
well, the more you are likely to establish your life with stability, with a certain amount of success and abundance, generally speaking. And this is why, as Christians, Christianity, we believe, has a high view of education and discovery and even the sciences as we discover more and more about God's world and how things work together. God doesn't want us to be simple-minded fools that are ignorant about his world. No, we should be knowledgeable, right? But more than that, as we see here in this text, we are called to be wise. That is, not only desiring knowledge for knowledge's sake, but rather we should study and learn all things in order to better live in accordance with the Lord God, our Creator, to live for His glory, to put all of our knowledge, all of our understanding in the context of who He is before Him, before His face, as creatures of God, our Creator, with the knowledge, first and foremost, of Him. And so here in this passage, the Apostle Paul, he tells the Christians in Ephesus that he's been praying that their God and Father of glory, as he says here, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. In all our learning, in all our knowing. Here is the greatest subject matter for us to study and come to know. God the Father. Through the mediation of his Son, by the Holy Spirit. Here is the object of our knowledge. God himself. In this text, that's what Paul is inviting us to. That's what God is inviting us to. To know him and his ways more and more. To stand more firm and hopeful with a deeper knowledge of who he is and all he has done for us in Christ and all he has promised to do for us by his spirit. And so, as we come to study this passage, I want us to consider three questions as we're going to examine the text. First, why? Why must you know the one true God? Secondly, what power do we receive by knowing him? What power? And thirdly, how do we come to know him and his power? So first, why must you know the one true God? Why is it so important? Well, it's because by knowing God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, you become connected, you become united to the very source of all hope and power. And that is why knowledge of God is true power here true strength fortitude and hope in life does not depend so much on what you know but who you know or whom you know namely god himself it's important to note here that the apostle paul when he wrote this in the first century to the church in ephesus there was a power struggle that was happening in the city there in a very pagan city it was a spiritual battle for power between the dark arts of magic the occult and the kingdom of christ which paul through the proclamation of the gospel brought to that place and in the book of acts it's fascinating to read in chapter 19 of acts we read about this struggle happening in the early stages of the apostle paul's ministry in ephesus where he says and where it says in 17 through 29 that fear fell upon them all, the residents of Ephesus, after this spiritual battle that occurs. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
and they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now it's hard for us to imagine this, to get our minds back into the first century, to imagine ourselves there, but the daily life of those living in antiquity, in Ephesus especially, was engaged in keeping away these dark spiritual forces that they, that they perceived were around them, these unseen forces. And they kept them at bay, or they tried to, with all kinds of magical practices, incantations and spells and using and calling them out by name as they all commonly knew them to be. And this was kind of the center of the life in Ephesus, in this pagan culture. They lived in constant fear, constant fear, just imagine it, of these invisible spiritual forces or beings that had names to them as well. And there are uh, commentators and scholars uh, can list a variety of different quotes from antiquity in Ephesus where they're specifically mentioning these kinds of things that took place and the different names that that these spiritual forces had. And so Paul here, what is he doing? He's putting his finger on this vulnerable, vulnerable spot in the culture of Ephesus to show them that there is no other name so glorious, so powerful as the Lord their God. That they don't need to know magic to walk in confidence without fear because they know the all-powerful God of glory who knows them and they are in his care. He rules supreme. So that was Ephesus, right? They were caught in this spiritual cosmic battle, this struggle for power. That's not exactly what we see today, right? If that was their case, what do we see today? We see, I think, that we're all caught up more or less in a political power struggle, right? Politicians and organizational leaders and influencers, etc., are all trying to gain power in society in order to push their agenda, whatever that might be. And in our modern context, that makes more sense to us. That's what we see is happening. But we shouldn't think of those two things, what, the way the, F, the Ephesians saw things and the way we see things as moderns, be two conflicting ideas. Rather, we should see that they have a way to come together in a sense. The Bible speaks about them as kind of a collusion of spiritual and human forces coming together. In reality, the power struggle isn't one or the other. It's both spiritual and both political, both cosmic and both human. And the Bible teaches us about this in a variety of different ways, but we see basically that humans are generally naturally selfish and grasping for power and in addition, these spiritual forces, demons, they seek out that inherent evil with the goal of amplifying it. And so we often think of demonic involvement in human life just in terms of uh, demon possession when a, when a person kind of becomes totally controlled and loses all sense of their mind and becomes uh, basically insane with demon possession. But that's not exactly the way the Bible uh, says that these evil entities engage primarily with human society. Rather, we see that the Bible teaches us that they subtly infiltrate and influence humans and their dealings in society, especially with those who have political power and influence in the world. And that's why Paul will later say in chapter 6 of this letter in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we have to see that in all of our struggles and battles uh, in the Christian life and as a church, that there is a cosmic spiritual element taking place. Now here are a few examples briefly of this collusion between spiritual and human forces in the Bible. We can think of King Saul. King Saul, who after some personal failures to obey God's commands and failures as a leader, his ego was deflated, right? And then we read that an evil spirit came and began to torment him. So he was already insecure and narcissistic, self-centered. And then it seems that the evil spirit that came to torment him only exasperated the darkness that was already there in his heart. And then after that evil spirit began to influence and torment him, he slowly began to despise King David, who was in his courts playing music, especially as the people of Israel began to compare the two leaders and, and say that David was greater in, other, in, in certain respects. And so we see that it, the spirit had this influence, this subtle uh, way of exasperating the darkness in his heart. Later in 1 Kings 22, we read an interesting uh, happening where the spirit comes forward and stands before the presence of God, the Lord saying, I will entice him, namely King Ahab. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And so we hear, here we find this lying spirit, this demonic force, uh, this demonic being influenced the thinking of, and the words of these prophets, the counselors, the cabinet of counselors of this king. And in that way had his uh, had influence, uh, deceptive influence in his reign. And, not, and lastly, we can think of Judas Iscariot, who, although was not a king or ruler, it's still strong evidence for us of this type of collusion between spiritual and human forces. Where John 13, 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We know that Judas Iscariot already was deceptive. He was already robbing from the offerings and taking it for himself. And so the devil just enhances the evil that was already there within, implanting the idea of betraying Jesus for more money and selfish gain. All these examples, they show us, they show us that there is not only a human dimension, to all of the battles and struggles that we see around us, the struggle for power, but there's a cosmic spiritual dimension as well. So the people in Ephesus, they were afraid of dark spiritual forces primarily, whereas today people in our culture are primarily afraid of political leaders and their influence, and that might be us today, we're primarily afraid of that. But Paul would say that they're not that different, those two different perspectives. What Paul would say to the Ephesians to strengthen them in the face of fears is also the same thing that he would say to us, to strengthen us as we face our fears. Why? Why should we fear political powers of our day? Why should we, why should we not be afraid of destructive political agendas? Why? It's the same answer that he gave the Ephesians, because we know him whose name is above all other names. And better yet, we are known by him, by faith. We belong to him. You see, God wants us to walk in confidence with hope and power that we belong to him who reigns supreme. And here the Spirit is saying that he wants the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, that we might know 
What is the hope to which he has called us? What are the rich of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? His power towards us. His supreme power. Dr. Baugh, in his commentary on Ephesians, he says here that Paul is aiding the Ephesians in gaining a deeper understanding of God himself and his redemptive gifts and power for his people in Christ. Christ himself is presented as supreme over every conceivable competing power in the universe. Every conceivable competing power. Jesus is supreme and above. And this is why we must know him. This is why. To walk in confident hope that we have no reason to fear seen or unseen powers because we know him who is all-powerful and the king over all. That is why we must know him, to walk in that confidence and that hope. Now, what power do we receive by knowing him? What power? Our second point. Well, the power we receive by knowing God is Christ's resurrection power by which he rules over all things. His resurrection power, it's transformative power, the power of his death and resurrection. This power belongs to God and God alone, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We remember how the Father granted resurrection power to the Son as the mediator of the elect. In John 5, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. The Son himself, then he rose from the dead in order to grant to us his resurrection power. And Jesus says so much in John 11, where he says to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who, be- who lives and believes in me shall never die. So he grants us that power. And he does it by the Holy Spirit who brings resurrection power to each and every one of the elect. Granting those who were once spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins newness of life in Jesus. This is the power that we receive in the name of Jesus. The very power that we receive by knowing God. And Paul says in our passage here that this is the immeasurable greatness of his power. The same power, the same power that he worked, his working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So we see here, it's, it's remarkable It's hard to even fathom that God is working in our hearts the same great might and power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in deep heaven. That power, that unique power is yours in Christ and at work in your heart, in your life, if you believe in Jesus, if you know God by faith. Now Paul here, he states that Jesus uses that power in different ways. He rules in in different ways, we might say. Specifically, he rules the world and the church differently. With his power, he conquers his enemies in the world and and controls all that happens. Every occasion is under his sovereign rule and power. Whereas in the church, he uses his power to protect, preserve, and perfect us, the elect, his church. Paul says that Christ is seated as king far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet. And so in other words, there's nothing, nothing done in this world that is outside of his rule and permission. As R.C. Sproul said, there 
There are no maverick molecules in the universe. There is no disobedient molecule. All is obeying Christ's sovereign rule and control. Proverbs 21, 1 20, uh, says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So even the rulers of the world, the politicians and the presidents and the kings, all of their thoughts and ways are actually in the hand of the Lord, according to his sovereign rule. And even those who do evil, they do it with God's permission, with God's permission. And we see that clearly when Jesus himself said to a ruler, Governor Pontius Pilate, in John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So even Pontius Pilate's authority to execute and condemn Jesus to crucifixion was according to God's sovereign plan and control. And so you see, Christians, your king's power is unmatched, unparalleled, sovereign and supreme, and he is putting all things, all things under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. No other king, no other ruler even those who have ruled wisely and done good in the world, no other king or ruler has conquered this great foe, death. In his play, Richard II, Shakespeare, he writes this about kings in this life. He says, Let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghost they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping, killed, all murdered. He then says that death, it's a vivid image, that death in a way keeps its court in the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of kings. Death is sitting there ruling upon all, all the heads of politicians and rulers of the world, sitting and scoffing the most powerful people of the world. Well, that might be true of them, but that is not true of Jesus. For he alone has conquered death and has made death his subject under his rule. Death does not keep court on the crown of Jesus, for Jesus is no mere mortal. He is the living king of kings with resurrection power, and death is bowing before him at his footstool. Death has no authority or power over Jesus, and so if you belong to Jesus by faith, it has no ultimate power or authority over you either. For your King Jesus will raise you up with him, body and soul, on the last day to live with him forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth in his kingdom of light. So what do we get by knowing God, knowing the one true God? We get what no one else can give us but Jesus, his resurrection power and the hope that comes with it. The resurrection power that is already at work in us, a foretaste of the eternal resurrected life that is to come when he returns. So lastly, our third point, how do we come to know him and his power? Loved one, it is by faith, by faith in him. And what is faith? Faith is true knowledge. It is assent and trust. That is knowing who Jesus was, learning about what he did in his life, what he said about himself, 
learning about his death and resurrection and affirming that you believe it to be true. Affirming that, that's assent. But then it's more than that. It's also entrusting your entire life, body and soul to him. Giving all of your hope and confidence over to him and entrusting all that you have to him and his care as your Lord and Savior. And if you do that by faith, you too will receive this power. If, if in fact you believe already, well, that is evidence that his resurrection power is already at work within you because we can only believe in him if the Spirit has regenerated our hearts and given us already newness of life and implanted within us that faith to embrace him, to entrust ourselves to him. Now, what if we've already entrusted ourselves to him by faith? Is it possible to know him more? Yes, yes. That's what Paul is saying here in writing to the Christians in Ephesus. He's writing to Christians, and yet he says that he wants them to know more, to be further enlightened in their faith by the Spirit, to dig deeper in their knowledge of him. And so we can and ought to know God more and more in our life. So how do we do that? Well, by prayerfully studying and meditating upon God's word, which is the revelation of him, to learn more about him and asking God as we approach his word, the same things that Paul is asking here, that he would give us inner sight, enlightenment of the, the eyes of our heart. That is our mind, our will and affections and desires that they would be quickened and enlivened to embrace all that is true and found in God's word. So we see that we need further enlightenment. We need to grow in our knowledge of who God is. Why? Because there's still darkness within us. Darkness that keeps us in fear and failure. That's why Paul wants us to grow in our understanding of who God is. That the light of his resurrection would shine within, dispelling the darkness, so that the light of the Spirit of God would reign supreme in our hearts. And this is more than book knowledge. It requires more than just human faculty of our mind. This is spiritual knowledge because it requires the Holy Spirit giving us sight, giving sight to the blind. And just as Jesus, when he healed the sight of the blind man, which is kind of a parable of sorts of us coming to faith and seeing clearly, uh, that blind man in Mark 8, after Jesus healed him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. His vision wasn't clear yet. And so Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So too, we see dimly now and little by little by the Spirit of God at work within us, we will see more and more clearly until we know in full and see clearly on the day of our Lord's coming. And so loved ones, little by little, we will come to know God with greater clarity as we seek him out in his word with knowledge comes greater degree of his resurrection power at work in us so that we might walk with confidence and hope knowing that we belong to our faithful king and savior jesus christ and that is why this knowledge of god is true power because it unites us and connects us to him who is the fountain of eternal life and resurrection power may that encourage and excite us to know him all the more amen let's pray Father God, we are humbled before you and before your word and the majesty of all that we find therein. Indeed, uh, we 
are not even scratching, barely scratching the surface of all that you are and have done for us in Christ. And there's so much more for us to learn and grow in as individuals and as a community. And indeed, this is not something that we alone with our minds can accomplish. It is something that only you, by the powerful working of your spirit in us, can accomplish. So we ask that you enlighten our hearts, that we might see more clearly who you are, and we might walk in greater confidence and hope, knowing that we belong to Jesus, our King, who reigns supreme, and who will raise us up on the last day. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.